Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Producer Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we're joined by Delia Pompa, a leader whose unique strength in quietude has helped her build and sustain a widely respected multi decade advocacy career across multiple political waves. She's been a voice for children and families from inside both venerable advocacy organizations and government, including the National Council of La Raza, the Texas Education Agency, and most recently, the Migration Policy Institute. Listen for insights into what has changed about being a woman in policy and what lessons Delia wouldn't have recognized 10 years ago, why mentors need not be older than you, and how to find the people who will sustain you personally and professionally, and how long-term lists can keep you going, and why adding is just as satisfying as crossing off. Hey, so we're getting to the end of season one of the Leaders Table podcast, and we'd love to hear your last-minute questions for our last few interviews, as well as your ideas and asks for season two. So email us anytime at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Delia Pampa at the Leader's Table. Delia Pampa, welcome to the Leader's Table. Thank you. So I'm excited to talk with you today for a number of reasons, not just not only because we'll get some great insight on ESSA, on Latino issues in the in in today's political environment and some of your insights, but also just uh, as a personal note to say thank you and that I, you've been a role model and a mentor to so many of us in the D.C. Latino policy community. I just uh, wanted to start there. Oh, I'm really honored that you say that. Thank you so much. So. Delia, tell us a little bit about what can be expected over the next two to three years when it comes to realizing educational equity uh, in the ESSA, in the new ESSA world. Well, I wish I had a crystal ball, but I I have some opinion about that. Um, First of all, we, um, as you know, have a law that's uh, a pretty baked law. We, We may not have regulations, but we do have a law and I've had the privilege of working with two um, two of the the big factors in in the implementation law. One is the states, and one is um, a large number of community groups. I think because there was um, a very intentional effort 
um, through the Congress and through the then administration, the Obama administration, to ensure that community voice was a part of the development of the plans and hopefully part of the implementation of the plans. The community has really stepped up in many, many states and has not only come to the table, but come to the table armed with opinions um, backed up by research and facts about what their state plan should look like um, for linguistic minorities and other racial and ethnic minorities and poor children. Mm-hmm. So I think the states have been very welcoming to them and they've listened to them. Um, the other piece of that has been my work with the states. And I have been very impressed with the states. I think they're making a very good faith effort to look at their policies and look at what their plans will look like to ensure that there's equity for um, minorities, as I said, racial and linguistic minorities. Um, They've done this by looking at their data and looking at historical performance and looking at where they want to go and setting up their account or beginning to set up their accountability system so that it reflects the demography of their states. Um, Beyond that, as I said earlier, I I think just their partnership with community organizations has certainly supported that. So those two elements, I think, are going to be very important moving forward over the next three years. Now, we'll see as the devil is in the details once we get to implementation, but there's a role for states and communities also in monitoring their performance as they move, and I I hope they will maintain that, that commitment to equity. Mm-hmm. Now, as of, uh, you know, just as you're, you're discussing here, reduced federal involvement in education in some, made, in some significant ways. And when ESSA was passed uh, a little over a year and a half ago, I believe, the Leadership Council Conference of Civil Rights said the following, the, prom- the, the, quote, the process of implementing this law will not be legitimate without the inclusion of communities we represent in all federal, state, tribal, and local decisions. And that state and local control has too often been an obstruction to narrowing disparities and we will not let jurisdictions with millions of dollars in federal aid off the hook for failing to equitably and, and adequately educate all children. This passage is a call to action for parents and stakeholders in every school district and every state to hold decision makers and administrators accountable for educating all students and to demand a seat at the table as this law is implemented in their communities. Has that call to action been answered? I think it is answered to a great degree, certainly much more so than has been in the past uh, answered. I think that community groups are stepping up all over the country. You've seen good coalitions form. Uh, You've seen them inform themselves about the policies. You know, it is a big task for community groups to engage in this process because we do want to speak here and in Washington, D.C., and the policies are sometimes um, um, not just complex, but but they um, are abstract to people in the field. I think it's important that people in the field, the community, understand how the policies, the potential policies and the implementation of these policies connect to the daily lives of children in schools. And I think they've done a good job of trying to figure that out, of working with national groups, national civil rights groups, and other experts to determine how that link is made between uh, children's daily lives and policy. And so many, many groups in many states have stepped up. And I think that the national civil rights groups have done a great job 
um, of helping them prepare for that engagement. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think many of the states, I, I, I really think most states have done a very good job of, of reaching out to the community. I think where they haven't done a good job is in understanding who the community is. I think that um, there had, has been a little bit of a correction in terms of uh, who's invited to the table, which which has been an important move. So I don't think it's perfect. I think we have much more engagement than we've had in, other, uh, in the implementation of federal laws before. And I think the statement from... Um, uh, the leadership conference is really an important one and captures um, the big change. Uh, one cannot advocate in one place anymore. We're having to advocate in 50 different places for the um, the implementation of this law in the per- in the correct way and in a way that that benefits our children. Now, as I said, I think people are stepping up. Mm-hmm. And do you is do you see a movement also in the in the the young leaders who want to be a part of the movement for educational equity, understanding that the fight today is right there in their state and being a part of those uh, of 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 the states seeking input on the development of their ESSA plans, and now that uh, that plans are being submitted, being a, hold, holding those uh, their stakeholders accountable. I think there's a dawning awareness, certainly when I look at teachers in schools. I think one of the unfortunate pieces of this is that sometimes the people in the schools know less about this law than than people in the community do. Uh, And that's been, um, I won't say disheartening, because it's not for lack of interest. It's the way things work. And so the information hasn't trickled down all the way to even principles sometimes. However, I have seen, I've been very excited by seeing a lot of young teachers who are involved in the advocacy organizations. Um, They're finding their place with community in terms of voicing what they believe uh, are equitable strategies that should be implemented in their states. And I've been, you know, they've sort of been in many cases translators to the community because they do understand the implications of the law on a, on a, on a daily basis in their classrooms. And they're able sometimes to explain to um, parents what that means, what, the, what these potential policies would mean for their children. And, and I think that's a very important role they play. Mm-hmm. Would it be true to say that it's more important that the principle, these principles of, of equity, these princi- principles of, of, um, of, of, equitable achievement or looking at um, at closing the achievement gap are more important to be in the common vernacular than it is to understand ESSA and its specific requirements? Oh, very definitely. Um, you know, a, a parent's concern, if you talk to them, is why is my child still reading that book and not the other book that that, mm-hmm. that other child is reading? And how you connect that to policy really is better understood and and, and, uh, a better connection is made when the general principle is understood of equity. And then you find your way into the details of the policy. And that's what takes um, some support from 
um, other organ organizations that work in policy on a day-to-day -day basis or who can help interpret policy. It isn't fair to expect parents to know the ins and outs of policy. Um, there are parents who do, and that's terrific. We need those advocates who have both the time and the um, have taken the time to understand um, the intricacies of policy. But most parents... Um, are doing other things. They're they're raising their children. They're working. They're putting food on the table, and they should be um, aware. They should be linked to the big principles, as you point out, and then hope that there are advocates that are able to uh, link those uh, principles to what's happening in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one more question about kind of the, the, the substance of, of reform and equity and uh, have a short conversation around testing. So a while back, uh, as NCLB was passed, uh, there was a quote uh, from NCLR at the time saying a major victory of no child, child left. Uh, I'm sorry, NCLR is a no, uh, the National Council of La Raza. A, a major Latino civil rights organization, saying a major... And I was formerly employed there. Yes. <laughs> uh, the quote said, a, a major victory of no child left behind for the civil rights community was its requirement for every student to be tested every year from third grade through eighth grade and once more in high school. Because NCLB said 95% of students must take the test for the results to be valid, schools could not ignore disadvantaged student populations to focus on easier to reach or high higher achieving students. Uh, now, this is clearly a call for more and better data in order to uh, achieve equity. But testing, it seems, is is a big political football and, and sometimes hard for the civil rights community to, um, to accept as a part of an equity regime. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I, I would challenge you a bit on, on maybe, and, and, and maybe I, I'm employing rather than you're employing, uh, some civil rights organizations. I think the vast majority of civil rights organizations understand why testing is so important and see testing uh, as an important aspect of providing the data that schools need and that communities need to understand where children are. Now, I, I think where there are some nuances uh, of um, disagreement are in whether the tests are equitable or, or, or fair tests. Um, I think we have made great strides in moving toward an understanding of what a, a test looks like that is uh, fair to students and provides the information that's needed. Uh, it's not perfect yet, but right now testing is the is the biggest source of information we have about how our children are doing. So, Delia, I'd like to turn to a, to um, ask you a little bit about uh, your insights on navigating changing politics. So, today you are a senior fellow at the migration in education at the Migration Policy Institute. You spent years at uh, the National Council of La Raza, a, a venerable civil rights organization, um, advocating on behalf of of Latinos nationally and in the states. And you have been a part of the policy conversation throughout changing administrations, waves of political change in Congress, um, uh, changing governorships. What have you learned about advocating, uh, particularly for Latino issues, but, but really for the, the principles of equity across, the, these, uh, across huge political shifts? Well, 
I think a few lessons, um, and and some of these are lessons that I wouldn't have recognized 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And, and the one I refer to is that I think educators at their heart want to do the right thing. And often when they're not doing the right thing, it's because they don't know what the right thing is or how to, how to accomplish the right thing. And so um, I, I think part of what comes from that and also for policymakers is as an advocate uh, making a case that um, allows you to, to take uh, on the role of the person you're trying to convince and to um, to figure out not what you want versus what they want, but what both of you want together. Um, and often you both get what you want doing that. Um, so that's one thing I think that I've learned. A second thing I've learned is um, that um, once you have a set of principles that you stick to, uh, and you know that, you know what your principles are, you have to know what you stand for, very deeply you have to understand that, then um, you can deal with the shape shifts um, because there are going to be compromises and there are going to be steps forward and steps backwards. Um, and it, it's important to take the long view. You know, that does doesn't mean you compromise at the beginning of the game. It means that you play many games <laughs> as you move forward and, and, and try to, um, to try to ensure that in the end, the principles you stand for are the principles that are at play and, and, and that are, that are functioning. Um, but doing that takes the long view and understanding that, um, in, within certain contexts, you're going to be able to accomplish some, a movement forward and in other contexts, you're going to stand still for a while. And in still other contexts, unfortunately, you may move back a little. But I always find that the moving back a little and the standing still for a while allows you to create a stronger strategy. I really do believe that. Um, as I look at the current political situation that we're in, um, one of the messages I have for for people who haven't been at this as long as I have is that um, there are times of what I call it quietude <laughs> where you take in the information and you reshape your strategy and you look around you to see what the strategy needs to be. And although it's painful at the time and it feels you're not moving forward in the long term, you learn how to move forward uh, in a better way and in a way perhaps that accomplishes more in the end. Mm -hmm. What's the most surprising victory uh, policy-wise that you've been a part of in in a surprising political environment? Um, I would say um, it's been over a period of time. I don't know that it's one event, but it shapes up to one shift and one change. And that is the fact that in the um, in in years past, thirty years ago, um, you could not get a policymaker. It was difficult to get a policymaker in Congress to agree to uh, increase services for English learners. It was a fight about whether we should be even doing it, and and what we should be doing, and how much it was costing, and you know what a burden this was. With the demographic shift. Uh, I think most policymakers understand, oh my goodness, these children are in our school and our whole 
um, future depends on how these children do because they're a significant part of my jurisdiction, whatever it is, as a, as a policymaker. And to move everybody forward, we need to move these children forward. And I think that's been a major change in attitude that has come from an understanding of how our country's changing. Mm-hmm. And what has been a the what's an example of a crushing defeat that or a crushing disappointment I should say um, that has taught you the most? Well, I think what I would say is there shouldn't be crushing disappointments. You should not be crushed ever by disappointment. Um, it's easy for me to say looking back, but the dis- disappointments I have experienced in policy. Um, were disappointments that made me want to work harder and made me find allies and made me um, find the information I needed to be able to um, convince people that a policy should be different or a situation should be different. Um, So you can't let it crush you because... um, because if you hold those principles and you find allies, they hold those principles with you, you can accomplish them. Um, but you got to get up and dust yourself off and keep going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, you have been an advocate for, for decades. And I'm wondering what, what has changed about being a woman in policy today uh, versus when, uh, when you started? Um, I think I have uh, young women have more role models than they used to have. Um, when I started out, um, I was very, very fortunate to have um, two or three um, women who were role models for me, uh, who supported me, who um, who gave me not only um, the professional support, but the friendship and the personal support I needed to be able to to move forward. Um, and I think today, as I look around, there are so many women who are, can be role models and are role models for other uh, young women and young men in, in, in education and other fields. And I, I think that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Who's mentored you? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I could start with my second grade teacher who was um, a Latina. She was uh, the only Latina teacher I had. And she was she had been a scientist at Oak Ridge, and she just um, she just supported us so much in so many ways, um, and that she was my first mentor. Um, uh, my mentor when I was in the school district, who she was a um, um, deputy superintendent, and she was just a role model in so many ways. She was firm in rooms, uh, in, in meetings, and she stood her ground and she was gracious at the same time. And I learned so much from her, um, moving on, um, in the Texas education agency, I had another mentor who taught me so much about working with, um, elected officials and working with it, with career officials and bureaucracies, um, I could just name so many. I think at every stage of my life, there was a mentor who was important to me. I still find mentors, I think, in life. How do you Sometimes find... they're younger than I am. Yeah. How do you many find them Many times today? these days they are. <laughs> how, do you, how do you find today's mentors and, uh, and what do you do to cultivate them uh, even at, at this, uh, this level of your career? 
Well, I, I do think mentorship is mutual, and it, it is um, uh, it feeds both the mentee and the mentor. Um, I think um, cultivating them um, not only includes having uh, a professional relationship or an underst- a mutual interest professionally, it really it, it goes beyond that into understanding the person and where they're coming from and why they believe what they believe. And I think that enriches um, uh, a mentorship relationship. I really do. Mm-hmm. Now, I just um, I'd like to get into some of the 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 tools and the tricks and the exp- the 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 practices that you use or that you've learned over the years just to help keep it all together. Um, so today you're a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute. Um, I'm curious about what are the, the what are the focus what are the the focus areas of what you do today, and and what are the things that you do employ every day, just to kind of keep it all keep all the trains moving. Well, um, let me see. Moving into this role really was a um, um, very intentional decision. I had in my career. Uh, move toward more of an administrative role and um, was involved in a lot of meetings and a lot of managing other people, um, which was, I think, important. It was an important role for me. But I wanted to, before uh, my career ended, to get back into the, what I call it, I don't want to call it dirty work, but into <laughs> the work of getting my hands back in it in a, in a bigger way. Uh, and it came around the time that ESSA, I knew, had to be implemented and and, um, and passed, and, and I thought this was a good opportunity for me to, to get back into the game and at, at a, a deeper level, and, and so that's why I did that. So I, I think, um, you know, a trick is to know what you want to do and how you're going to make the change and understanding what role you can play in making a change and what your, what your strengths are and, and how you contribute. Uh, so I think that's one trick is to just understand how you're going to be able to get to where you want to go. Uh, not, not professionally. I, I think uh, how you get, get to where you want to move those principles forward that you've worked for it and you're working for all your life. Mm-hmm. Um, on a daily basis, um, you know, I, I think that um, um I start the day by looking at what I have to accomplish that day and making my lists. I make my lists every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know what? At the end of the day, I've crossed off half of them and I've added, uh, you know, five more. But I think that's what it is for everyone. We never accomplish everything we want to do every day. And we add something every day. But that really is what keeps us going. And I think that keeps you going on a long-term basis in a career, and it keeps you going on a daily basis in a job. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, as we ask this question um, of every guest on on this podcast, the thing that uh, is most constant is this 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 um, list making and crossing things off practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a satisfying it thing. <laughs> yeah, it works. Right. Such a satisfying thing. If so, listening to this to this podcast, there is a young woman and a young man today who's in a classroom. Um, they're teaching. Uh, they might be active in their community. They see themselves um, going out at some point in their lives to tackle these big issues. 
what do you advise them to do in order to uh, to follow a path that will be satisfying to them and and help them to realize a significant impact in in ways that will uh, affect children's lives through policy? Well, first, I would say to them that they're already tackling big issues. There's no bigger issue than being in the classroom and 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 uh, uh, creating an instructional environment where kids are learning. But I think sometimes when you're in the classroom and you realize that the limits of your impact um, may be 30 kids at a time, 25 kids at a time, and perhaps you want to get to uh, impact on a wider basis, and that's maybe when you decide that there are other things you want to do um, or can do. Now, that may mean continuing to be a teacher and writing a blog or continuing to be a teacher and being more engaged in a community and working in advocacy, but it also may mean going into a management position uh, or going into um, going back for um, additional education and moving um, I don't want to say up the ladder, moving to a different place uh, where you feel your impact has wider uh, effect. Um, I think the decision to be made at that point is where are where is your comfort and where are you feeling like you're you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish. I think we all have different um, different responses to our audiences in terms of whether we're getting the feedback we need from them. And I think one knows when you're not getting enough of the feedback that you've done what you want to do and you need to then look for another arena to do the same thing, but to have the impact you want. Um, it's important to recognize where you are feeling um, Comfortable. I, I, I think that's the only word to use. You know when you have to or want to move to a different venue for having the impact you want to make. Um, it is important. Um, it has been important in my life not to chase a job because I think it has more prestige. It's been important for me to learn to go after a change in where I'm having impact because I feel like it will give me the effect I want in terms of the impact I'm making. Um, and so that's the advice I would give. I, I would also give the advice to um, learn as much as you can and do as good a job as you can. That sounds pretty basic, but you know, often opportunities come to you when you're doing that. You, you don't always have to be looking for the next big thing. Big things come to you in surprising ways. Absolutely. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. That was a while ago. What advice, what does it feel like to be 23 again? Um, the advice I would give would be... Um, I wish I knew what a difference I was making then. I didn't. I didn't. It took me a while to understand that I was making a difference um, in, in the way I was doing things. Um, and that at that point, um, 
I had a lot to offer and it took me a while to understand that I did have a lot to offer. So um, that sort of belief in yourself, I think is important, the self-confidence that comes and perhaps it just comes with experience. Excellent. Delia, I thank you for all that you do every day, uh, for being a, a leader, a role model, and for your inspiration and for your generosity of, of, of spirit and sharing so much here with us on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you to whoever listens to this podcast. You have a great future ahead of you. We look forward to talking with you again. Thanks. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leaders table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 